Hello and welcome to the 12 Minutes of Workplace Health podcast. I'm Harry Bliss, CEO and co-founder of Champion Health. And today we're joined by Amy McKeon, award-winning health, mental health and well-being strategist. Amy's specialism lies in unique implementation experience, whereby we can focus on implementing meaningful, effective well-being strategies. Amy's an advocate for women's health, a thought leader and a global speaker and has worked with organisations from Ernst & Young through to other global brands. Welcome to today's podcast, Amy. Hello, Amy. How are you? I'm good, Harry. How are you? I'm very well, very, very well today. Um, so today we're going to discuss all things wellbeing strategy, um, health analytics, all the way through to mental health and women's health. Um, can we start with quite a tricky question of what is a wellbeing strategy uh, by your definition and from your experience? Well, that is an interesting question because what is one is very different to what one should be. So I'll start with what I often see uh, and then I'll start I'll answer by what I think it should be. So what I often see is a nice looking PowerPoint cobbled together, a lot of activities, some mindfulness, maybe a mental health first aider, all uh, kind of collated into something that's supposed to be strategic and is stuck on a notice board or on an intranet. Um, most of which seems to be nice things that the HR person or lead of well-being enjoys doing and thinks is going to offer impact. Um, so what a strategy is, usually collected sort of activities with no real, well, they're tactics with no real thing. What a strategy should be is really clear definition of what you're trying to achieve as an organisation, why you're trying to achieve it. I tend to try and build ones that cover prevention, education, through to what you do for early stage um, illness and then how to treat and recover people who are off work. And, uh, you know, a strategy should look strategically at all of those things and should cover policies, processes, what providers you've got in place, care pathways and how it fits into job roles and performance management. And you mentioned policies there, which I find fascinating because it's often ignored um, in relation to well-being strategies, but arguably the most important thing. Would you agree with that? Well, it's a way of driving your strategy. So what I see often is that strategies are the bit of paper that have been written and are stuck on the internet. They're not actually the way that you do things in an organisation. And the way that you change behaviour and the way that you do things is through use of your policies, through use of job roles and through how you performance manage. So with policies, you need a decent absence management policy, a return to work policy, a reasonable adjustment we're increasingly seeing things around mental health policies, uh, women's health policies, menopause policies, menstrualities policies, uh, life event policies. You know, that's how you drive behaviour and that's how you bring your strategy from being a piece of paper or something stuck on an intranet site or somewhere into the living, breathing, what people are doing on a daily basis. And who are the stakeholders that you'd engage in that process of drawing up these policies? Are they lawyers? Are they internal? Are they external? Are they mental health professionals? Um, is it the CEO that's engaged with it or head of HR? Who would you see as the key stakeholders in that conversation? Well, there's a difference between policies and strategy, right? So when I work with clients, I tend to end up with a large working group around well-being, which you know has to, if it's going to succeed in an organisation, include if not the, the CEO, a board member, you know, the HR director, you need learning and development, you need uh, benefits, you need diversity and inclusiveness, you need someone running performance management, you might need your facilities team, you know, so, you know, for, for health and mental health to actually have an impact in an organisation it is a huge, I mean, it's basically stakeholder management, 
Where it fails is when it never really leaves HR. Now, in terms of policy development, yes, you might need a lawyer to look at the legalities. But I think an organisation sitting at board level or a wellbeing level, looking at what they want to achieve and how they want to be and who they want to be can draw up policies themselves. But yeah, there is obviously, so something like reasonable adjustments or mental health, there are legal connotations to do with the Equalities Act that you need to make sure are covered. But that is the baseline for a policy. I mean, I would like to see policies that are leagues above of what the legal baseline is. Yeah. And would you suggest to start from, I find this conversation fascinating, would you suggest to start with um, what we're looking to achieve, first of all, and then go through, filter down into what the legal um, standpoint is as well? How would you just get started with that? And what would your advice be to, to the listeners? Well, the first thing I tend to ask clients, so the types of clients that tend to find me are either people at the start of their health and mental health journey or people that have kind of done it off their own steam through HR or diversity inclusiveness, but kind of run aground. And I always start with the why. Why are you doing this? You know, are you doing this because everybody else has a well-being policy? Are you doing this because you want to change your culture? Are you doing this because you've got a problem like absence or long-term absence? Because until you've got the why, you can't really then figure out the what. And often the why is some wishy-washy statements about reducing the stigma and increasing awareness, which to me is not really a very articulate or structured why. Once you've figured out the why, you can then figure out the what. And you can be really clear that you're allocating the right resource or seniority or support to actually get it done. And I think it's also really important to... So I start with, you know, why are you doing this? What are you trying to achieve? You know, are you realistically going to achieve that given the time energy budget and the level of the organization this is at but I also encourage people to spend a bit of time thinking about what health and mental health means to them as an organization because I think that fits into the what and the why as well you know are we looking at helping people with mental health conditions in the workplace that are disclosed have a a more equitable life in that society in that company are we looking at encouraging everyone to talk about their feelings all the time like what are you actually trying to achieve are we trying to give good health care support like secondary care to come to people so they're back to work quicker if they're sick i think unless you've articulated what health and mental health is as well as what why and how then you you can't really start and that's absolutely fascinating and i think the why is is yeah definitely the place to start for for everyone and also to keep continually review that why because that will evolve and change over time as well um, I'd love to talk to you about mental health specifically, and you mentioned in our conversations previously that how much strain and pressure the NHS are under, um, and we're all very aware of that. What do you think um, society and businesses can do to support people that are on long waiting lists for cognitive behavioural therapy, for example, for depressive symptoms? Well, this is an interesting question because, of course, mental health has only really become like trendy, I'd say, in the last few years. You know, my father is a psychiatrist who for a long time was involved in hospital management. And for about 30 years, resource was taken out of the NHS for mental health because mental health, it was easy to make cuts there because no one really cared about it. So we're in a situation now where arguably we've had 30 years of cuts in mental health services, but people are now more aware of mental health. And with the pandemic, there's a lot more talk about mental health and there's a lot more people seeking support, right? So I would start with the, what sort of support are people needing and why? You know, do, do, does everyone need cognitive behavioural therapy? Like cognitive behavioural therapy 
is something that everyone loves because, to be blunt, it's got a big evidence base behind it because it fits nicely in randomized controlled trials. It's relatively cheap and it's structured and there's an endpoint. So it can have great effects for some people, but not great effects for other people. You know, it's, it's a bit like someone once likened it to putting a layer of polish over the scratches on the kitchen floor in the, you know, kind of. Um, so, so, so in answer to your question, I would say I'm not sure everybody needs cognitive behavioral therapy. There are different yeah. things that are out there. So does anyone you know? Can we just create space and facilitated space for people in the workplace to talk about what's going on with them? Is there... Is the workplace the most appropriate place to do that? I don't know. But I certainly know when I was running peer support networks, that just having that peer support or a buddy scheme actually went a long way to solving. Because there's a big difference between wanting to speak to someone when you're having a wobble or having empathy with someone who's been through something similar and actually needing to go on a waiting list for a therapy, right? So I think, you know, peer support buddy systems are things that organisations can look at. A lot of organisations have employee assistance programmes. A lot of those are utter rubbish and most of them are CBT based. But I think looking at, you know, what they are and can they fill that gap? Because, I mean, I think it's fair to assume that even with the new guidelines, if you are looking for treatment on the NHS, it's going to be a long wait. So organisations can fill that, but they can fill it not necessarily just in a, well, we buy everyone CBT type way, you know, peer support, networks, um, awareness training, just so people know what they're going through, you know, employee assistance programs i'm increasingly suggesting to organizations that they think about buying their own in-house therapists but a range of therapists because that can work out cheaper than buying a commoditized service there's obviously checking whether it's whether therapy is covered if you've got some sort of private health insurance but looking at it strategically and looking at different you know how do we prevent people getting ill? What do we do for people in the early stages? What's mild illness? What's moderate illness? What's severe illness? And what do we have in place for all of that different spectrum that's either internal, is our own procured providers, or that we can access through a private health insurance? It's absolutely fascinating in terms of looking at getting those internal therapists as well. I think that's going to be something that's more and more common. And also you mentioned uh, the choice being absolutely crucial within there. Can I just make one point about this? Because I think this is really important as well. You know, we need to have an adult discussion about whether the workplace is the right place for B2B people to be talking about this. Though. Because I was talking, so one, I won't mention it, but there was a, a one of the largest tech companies in the world as part of their employee proposition offers free mental health support to people. And I was talking to a health provider recently who was saying that every, you know, they are just procuring like therapists that get gobbled up by this company. And, you know, I come from a psychiatrist who very clearly thought his view was that you consult, you treat someone, you move on. You're not in therapy for 30 years. And my concern is, is that if like therapy becomes part of an employment contract, it means that people might not leave the company because they're in therapy paid for by the by the organization for years. And and I'm not sure how helpful that is to anybody. You know, it, that's what I mean about what is mental health, you know. Is having a therapist for 30 years or 10 years or five years, you know, necessary for people to live their lives? Or is it something that people are now doing because mental health is quite trendy? Like, you know, And is the workplace the right place to be having these conversations? I think these are all things that we need to be looking at. Loads to debate and for people to ponder on um, off, off the back of this. And I, I suggest them having a conversation with their teams around this. And the final thing that I'd like to touch upon is women's health. Mm -hmm. And rightly so, there's more and more being spoken about it. The awareness is being raised. Um, 
what do we need to do in 2022 and beyond to be able to get it to the stage um, where it needs to get to? Well, I think just starting to recognise that women's bodies, women's hormones, women's needs are something that are very different to men's. And I mean, when we talk about mental health, just as we have been doing this this podcast, we've been talking about it is a generic thing. It's actually not. It presents very differently for men and women. There's a hormonal effect. There are some illnesses that women have that men don't have. There are some illnesses that we all have, but we show different symptoms. So, you know, for me, the women's health, it's it's always been, you know, we don't really know a lot about women's bodies because we've not done the research. So starting to recognise that it is an issue, when we're looking at health and mental health and well-being, we're actually looking at how we can tweak our policies and strategies and our approaches for different demographics, women being one, and making sure that we, you know, you mentioned CBT. CBT is quite a linear process, which a lot of more women than men find unhelpful. So are we offering the right things? Are we thinking about it? Are we changing our workplaces so that they're more equitable for women? Because I can't help thinking that the fact that more women have things like depression and anxiety is is partly down to the role of a woman in society and at work so if we start to crack some of those issues then that's going to have an impact on health and mental health as well fantastic well we are up for time and i would love to extend this podcast i think we need to Um, but a huge thank you to you amy um in terms of joining us today i'm sure our members will see a lot more of us working together going forwards again but thank you for your time today thank you thanks everyone For more exclusive insights and content around workplace wellbeing, please subscribe to this podcast and we look forward to seeing you on the next episode.